Our Father and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. You know, by now you've probably heard about the young woman who was pulled from the waters off Paradise Cove last month. Her rescuer was the sailboat captain's first time out of the harbor in Marina del Rey as the captain. He and some friends were making a short trip to Malibu. He'd given his passengers the required, you know, the safety and rescue instructions on what to do if someone, you know, were to go overboard, never for a moment thinking they might need it. They were following and filming a pot of dolphins about three miles offshore when he saw what looked like a hand in the water. It disappeared in the chop. And as he watched, he saw it again, an arm being raised. And when they got closer, they saw that it was a woman floating on her back. After lifting her on board and calling for help, they discovered that she'd been in the water for 12 hours. Imagine treading water for 12 hours. She'd gone for a night swim in Venice and gotten disoriented and pulled out to sea. The water was just 66 degrees. She suffered from severe hypothermia, and the captain and his friends are being given credit for saving her life. Right place, right time, the will to act. The newly minted captain said he isn't religious, but his being there that day made him think there might be something larger at play. Now, Christians have been making a pretty good case for centuries that the in-person arrival of Jesus into the world that first Christmas was also an example of something larger in play, God's perfect timing. In the fullness of time, the Apostle Paul would write to the Galatians, meaning when the right time came, uh, God sent forth his son. By the night Jesus was born to the song of angels, the vast Roman Empire had already encompassed hundreds of different peoples in ever-expanding circles of conquest. Most of them had been allowed to retain their cultural identity, as long as they didn't, it didn't interfere with their primary allegiance to Rome. The result was a time of relative peace. Of course, the quality and the extent of the Roman roads in the empire is legendary, facilitating and encouraging free travel across the Mediterranean and even beyond. Greek was sort of the common language of the West, not unlike English is today. Um, and so a nearly universal language like that meant that Christianity could spread quickly, not only through the spoken word, but also through a common uh, written language as well. Of course, there was you know, more to, to than just random timing behind the success of Christianity. There was God's perfect timing, and then there was the work of the Holy Spirit. How often have you heard someone say that they dodged a bullet, maybe when they came to avoiding some otherwise devastating circumstance? Maybe because they stopped to get a cup of coffee or maybe because they left a little later than usual for work that morning. Uh, timing can be important, right? Being at the right place at the right time or wrong place at the wrong time can often make all the difference between life and death, between success or failure. Choosing to take one fork in the road of life over another, uh, to take the theology out of it, getting tinkled on by a puppy or passing it off just in time. Martin Luther was studying law in the summer of 1505. It had been his father's wish, and Martin had been a good student. Now, that summer, though, after a frightening near-death experience when he got caught in a lightning storm, things changed. He was knocked from his horse by a particularly close strike, and, times being what they were, he cried out to his father's saint, the patroness of minors, Saint Anne, help me, I will become a monk. Finding himself still alive, he made good on that promise, taking it as a call from God himself. And again, the timing and the man would make for a perfect storm of reform in the church. 
Those medieval years were very different from our much more secular times. The spiritual world back then was never questioned. It was taken for granted. Not only the kingdom of God and his angels, but Satan and his demons as well. It was a time when Jesus had been portrayed by the church as a, a stern, frightening judge, seated on a rainbow, sending sinners to hell. But if Jesus was frightening back then, the devil was just plain terrifying. He cut a figure who would go so far as to drag the dead from their tombs by their hair and cast them into the fires. That allowed the church, though, to regulate and control and define a person's life. It held sway not only over their life on earth, but it claimed to hold sway even over their soul after death. It wasn't always uh, so black and white. People's faith in the church's power had really been shaken when Europe was devastated by the Black Plague, a pandemic that uh, claimed one-third of Europe's population in the mid-1300s. By the late 1300s, the church was plagued by infighting and costly border wars. Three different popes had been elected at the same time, and they all claimed authority over the faithful. There was one in France, one in Pisa, and one in Italy, in Rome. By the time that got all sorted out, the, the overtaxed peasants were in revolt in England and Italy and Flanders. And it won't be too long before Germany is concluded in that. In spite of the controversies, though, the church survived as the church does, and not only survived, but dug its heels in. Now it could focus on fighting theological battles as they took the a deadly stand against whatever they deemed to be heresies. People were being condemned and even executed for simply claiming that God's word should be made available to the laity. The church claimed that scripture was too important to, to trust the untrained, that it was the church's job to interpret it as God's representative on earth. And on top of that, the papacy had refined the practice of, of the mass, holding that clergy alone were uh, able to partake of the wine in the Eucharist. So by the time a young Martin Luther was taking his vows as a uh, novice monk in the Augustinian order, the time was right for a, a religious reformation. And while the monastery generally considered uh, itself the surest way to heaven, and, and it might have been a place of peace and rest from the outside world, uh, not for Luther. He found no solace there from the terror of an angry God. The harder he tried, the more he became aware of his shortcomings. Luther had set upon a pursuit of holiness, and becoming a monk constituted just such a quest. It was a place where his practice and pursuit of perfection, free from the distractions of the, the uh, temptations in the outside world, uh, should have made it easy, but not for him. He fasted sometimes for three days without so much as a crumb. His desire to please God uh, drove him to embrace the penitential season of Lent, even over the celebration of Easter but it never felt like enough to warrant an angry God's favor. He turned to the merits of the saints for comfort. His beloved church, while taking an individualistic vow of sin, uh, took a corporate view of goodness. Sins had to be recalled and accounted for one by one if there was to be any hope of absolution or forgiveness for them. When you died, you were sentenced to a place called purgatory, not heavenly at all, not yet. It was a place where the price for sins not remembered and confessed or uh, maybe not yet atoned for on earth before you died could be paid over centuries or even millennia. Luckily for the poor sinner, the church had decreed that earthly credits for goodness could be pooled. That pool was filled with goodness of the saints and the Blessed Virgin whose exemplary lives earned more than they ever needed to achieve God's favor. 
Even the goodness of Christ's own perfection contributed to the supply of this grace that only the church, through the Pope, could tap into and transfer to an individual's needs. Indulgences were all about taking the edge off the pain of purgatory with this, this kind of saved-up treasure chest of unused grace. I know it sounds kind of silly to us, but to a medieval peasant, it, it provided a mechanism to free the poor souls of your beloved or even yourself um, from the penalty of sins left unconfessed or, or maybe even forgotten and therefore unforgiven when you died. Okay, it, was, it really offered hope, but for a price. Or put another way, it was forgiveness for sale. But that's how people were being taught. You were reconciled to God. And no one ever dared question it, at least publicly. In 1510, Luther had the opportunity to travel to Rome on monastery business. Um, he'd be there for a whole month, which enough, with, give him enough free time to take in its rich history. But that wasn't what excited or even interested Luther. The Eternal City was also home to uh, untold treasures of relics that offered by papal declaration reduction in your afterlife sentence just by viewing them. Various churches in Rome claimed to be holding such valuables as a piece of Moses' burning bush, the chains that once held St. Paul, the scissors Emperor Domitian used to clip the hair of St. John. Uh, one even claimed to have one of the coins that was paid to Judas to, uh, when he betrayed our Lord. There were, the bone, there were bones of saints and hay from the manger, uh, splinters from the cross, and there were the stairs, the, 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 the Scala Sancta, 28 steps, supposedly uh, which had once stood in front of Pilate's palace, steps our Lord himself would have climbed during his passion. And the church promised that if you climb them on your knees, repeating the Lord's prayer on each one, the soul of a dearly beloved would be released from purgatory into heaven. No city on earth was so uh, richly endowed with spiritual indulgences as holy Rome. And so Luther visited the shrines, and he viewed the relics, and he climbed those stairs on his knees, even wishing that his father and mother were already dead so that he might free them from the bonds of purgatory by his sacred act, kissing each step as he went. But when he got to the top, he raised himself, and he wondered aloud, who knows whether it is true. You see, beyond all that was supposedly holy, Luther had witnessed much more in Rome that was not. He saw the corruption of the church and the ignorance and superficiality of its priests, how they rushed through six masses while he was still saying one. He watched them mock the sacrament in front of the common people who didn't understand a word of their Latin. He witnessed violence and brutality and even murder in the streets, and it left him more disillusioned than ever. The following year, he was called to serve as a professor of theology at the University of Wittenberg. Still, he was haunted by his own inability to please a perfect, holy God who hated sin and must therefore be angered all the more by a sinner like himself. And Luther's tipping point came from his years of studying the Word there. In the summer of 1513, he began a series of lectures on the Psalms. And then by the fall of 1515, he was lecturing on Paul's letter to the Romans, and then it was on to the Apostles' letter to the Galatians. These were the times that proved to be Luther's road to Damascus, his great awakening. It was in the course of those studies that he found the answer to years of prayer. God's word clearly said in Romans 1.17, for in the gospel a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. 
And from our second lesson this morning, Romans chapter 3, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Before you can understand just how powerful a statement that is, you have to get past all the church words. For all have sinned. That just means no one is perfect. No one has ever been perfect except Jesus. And no one ever will be from now until judgment day. We've all broken his commandments. Now you think to yourself, well, some of them maybe, but I've never murdered anyone. You know, my first reaction would be to say the same thing. But then Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, you've heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. They ever put being angry with someone right up there with murder? Evidently God does. We've all failed to love our neighbor as ourselves. We've all put something or someone before God in our lives. And that's a sin too. We've all sinned against God in one way or another. And because God is a just God, we deserve what's coming to us. God's penalty uh, for sin, by the way, is the ultimate death sentence. Physical death and then spiritual death. Eternal separation from him in a place where hope doesn't exist. So you can begin to see Luther's worries and concern. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Uh, God is perfect and holy without sin. And justified by his grace. Justified is a, is a word that means how we're declared right with God. If you think of it like uh, just as if I'd never sinned. It's easy to remember. We are justified uh, by his grace. Grace is another church word. Uh, it means the undeserved love and mercy of God. Uh, God doesn't owe us anything, but he offers us everything freely. The Bible says that apart from those good things we do uh, as a result of our faith, all our works are like filthy rags, at least in his sight. There's absolutely nothing we can do to get past those pearly gates someday apart from God's grace. The angry judge of a God Luther had been taught to fear is to those who are his own, of course, a welcoming, loving, heavenly father. The model for all earthly fathers who's willing through no merit of our own to welcome us into heaven as his own dear children. And he wants all people to be rescued and come to faith in, in, in his son. But the next part's really the, the, the crown of it all. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Jesus lived a perfect life God's law demanded, but we could never accomplish, and he did it for us in our place. Jesus would go to the cross to suffer and die for our sins in our place, so that by faith in him, we might be forgiven, declared right with God. His life and his atoning death for us redeemed us. It, it purchased our freedom from slavery to sin with his own shed blood. It set us free from the power of sin and death and the devil. Now, can you begin to sense that, that kind of freedom that gives us? Not freedom to sin, but to be out from under sin's heavy burden of guilt and shame and condemnation. And that's the real power that Satan wields over us. You're not good enough, you'll say. God could never forgive what you've done. You can't even forgive yourself. How could a holy God ever forgive you? How could he ever love a person like you? That's his trap. That's his power. It's his lie. In the Gospel of John, Jesus calls him the father of lies. The truth is that God does love you so much that if you had been the only person alive 
he still would have sent his son to suffer and die on that cross to take away all your sins. That's how valuable you are. That's really what gives you value. That's the good news we have to share with the whole world. Luther had it all right all along that there was nothing we could possibly do to save ourselves. But now he understood, and this is really the key to understanding the Reformation, that there was nothing left to do except believe that, that Jesus did it all for us. Luther had finally found the freedom from the guilt and the hopelessness he'd been seeking. And so can you. He discovered that really what had been there all along in God's word, the good news of salvation by God's grace alone, through faith in Jesus Christ alone, and that it was God's word alone, not papal decrees and church councils, that should be the source of doctrine and truth. And so he set out to make things right. These three solas, a Latin word for alone, became a sort of battle cry for the reformation of the church that followed, a shaking herself free of all the shackles that encumbered her, chains conceived and constructed by a church that had really lost her way. Luther never set out to start a new church body. Uh, he only wanted to fix what was broken with the old one. But a lot of people had a lot to lose if that happened, a lot of wealth and a lot of power and so they fought back. Luther was eventually excommunicated, and uh, here we are today. So that's the story of the Reformation. But the story of the Reformation really is, isn't nearly as important as its message. The simple truth that people like you and I are rescued from sin and freed from its condemnation by God's undeserved love and mercy, his grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. Not salvation step by step in some sort of hand-in-hand -hand cooperation with God, but instantaneous and in full, by faith. That's the promise of God in his word. That's the good news we take with us today to carry out into the world. Amen. Now may that very special peace of God that passes all understanding keep your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus. Amen. We'll take a moment now to receive your gifts your tithes and your offerings.